music. Is there anybody out there? The history of music has long been fascinating. Is there anybody out there? Seemed to reach its peak in the 60s and 70s and fueled by a deep-seated need there anybody out there? to express individuality in a society that had become enveloped in the idea of white-collar jobs and consumerism. Is there anybody out there? The American dream became what we now know it as, and the following two decades responded with the most influential music the world has ever heard. The music was different and didn't follow a formula. It was fueled by emotion, recorded in a single room and played as loudly as their sound systems could handle. There was no telling what was coming next. Every song and every artist was different. Many songs had solos that would last minutes on end and lullaby the listener into a semi-psychedelic state. But somewhere along the line, Music changed and evolved. Music became something that it really hadn't been. It became a competition. Who could make the coolest sounding riff was more important than making a song that reflected a feeling or a mindset. Today, we have award shows for every type of music, defining who is the best became more about making easy-to-remember, fast-paced songs with little variation between each line of the song. Music will never die, but what has it become? Welcome to the show. I won't say welcome back, because this ain't McDonald's, okay? I'm not going to assume you've been here before. It's rude. Making assumptions are rude. Never make assumptions, okay? All right, good. I just don't, I don't want you making assumptions. It's just wrong. When you make an assumption, people get hurt. Say your friend gets stung by a bee. Are you just going to assume he's allergic to bees and stab him with an EpiPen? Oh, would you look at that? He's not. And the adrenaline gives him a heart attack. And now your friend is dead. All because of an assumption. See? Assumptions kill. Okay. I'm glad we got that out of the way. There's your life advice for the week. Welcome back to the show. Oh, son of a bitch. I just made an assumption. Look at me. I am a hypocrite. And that's the worst thing to be. Now I apologize. Welcome to the show. Especially if you've never been here before. Hopefully it's a good one. Can't make any promises. But at the same time, I'm not making any money off of this. So I don't really care. I'm just having fun. This is a good routine for me. I enjoy this. So we're going to kick it off strong today. Son, son, tell me, can you tell me the name of that one guy in that one movie, you know? 
He was he was a good guy. He uh, he had a mustache. What was his name? No, that one movie. The, the, I, the, I don't know. You know, he was the guy in the movie. The the, 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 the good guy with the mustache, you know? Burt Reynolds? Hey, that's him, yeah. Yeah, great guy, great guy, yeah. I met him once in Vegas. was a sailor who had eyes of black, never sat down, never looked back, till one day I joined his crew, and like a whistle his head done blew. Ho, ho, the whistle blow, the whistle blow, down in the galleys deep below, the whistle blow, the whistle blow, black eye jack ain't kept no more. Don't have a stinky house, okay? There's no excuse. If you throw some vegetables away in the, in the trash... While you're cooking dinner, make sure you take that trash out that night. Stinky houses are not good. You don't want to go to somebody's house and it stinks. It smells bad, off-putting. You know that their insides probably stink too. Stinky souls in stinky houses. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go over to a friend's house. Name a friend. And the first thing you noticed every time when you walked into their house was the smell. Does it smell good? Does it smell bad? Some friends' houses smelled like fresh laundry detergent and fresh vacuumed carpets. Others smelled like baby poop. Eventually, you go, you go nose blind to both, but then when you come home, you notice your own house smell. And for, for me, I'm like, my house smells like stinky stink. We got to do something about this. So, like, you know, I, I bring it up. And, and we get better over time. And then I go to a friend's house. I come back or I go, I leave for a few days. I come back and I notice, hey, my house doesn't stink. Our house smells kind of nice. It's welcoming scent. There's no excuse for a stinky home. Wipe your counters off. 
Take your trash out regularly and don't let dishes just sit uncleaned. That's all you got to do. Flush your toilet twice, maybe light a candle, buy some candles. There's no excuse. People are like, candles are elitist. I'm not paying $27 for a 16-ounce candle from Kohl's or Yankee Candle. But you can just go to you can just go to TJ Maxx and they got plenty for like 8 bucks. Really good smelling candles too. So, so, so stop the stinky houses, you know? You don't want a stinky house, okay? We did it. Episode number 18 and closing in on that double decade. Today, I'm extremely pleased to introduce a man of many stories, each more fascinating than the next. My guest today had a dream, a life goal, and he accomplished it. Pete Flanders, also known as Pete Fat Cat Flanders for living the life as good as a fat cat, is a legendary disc jockey from the WAMM and WTAC AM radio stations in Flint, Michigan from the 60s to 70s, I believe. Pete got his start playing school dances and from there it escalated quickly. He became well known in the area for not only playing great music and providing solid commentary, but for emceeing concerts and working behind the scenes during some of Flint's most legendary shows. Pete has a fascinating life story, and it is always a pleasure to talk to him. It was a true honor to have him on the show, and I I cannot wait to do it again. Ladies and gents, Pete Flanders. Mr. Pete Flanders, welcome to the Travis Lebrecht Show. Well, thank you for having me. It's really an honor. I was yeah. uh, pretty excited about this. Yeah, this is a step up from sitting at the bar at 501, <laughs> talking about everything that happened in Flint back in the day. Yes, it is. Now we get to uh, now we get to broadcast to maybe uh, 10, 15 people. Oh, hey, 10 or 15, <laughs> I, you know, you got to start small. Exactly. Got to start somewhere. Yeah, this is, you know, I got this started just because I wanted um, to get interviews with friends and interesting people that I meet along the way to have, you know, most people, they live their life and all you have is the stories about them. To so, so to have actual audio recordings of them telling stories is just it's unique. An, it's an archiving thing. Yeah. And we have always said that once the stories are gone, they get changed every time somebody tells them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they fade away. Yeah. And then there's nothing there and... People say, oh, you remember when? No, I can't because I forgot. Yeah, and eyewitness memory is some of the worst. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Which makes me think, you know, so you... I've witnessed a few things. I'm sure you've witnessed more than uh, more than most men in, uh, in that aspect of life. So if you could just give uh, me and anybody listening a little bit of background about um, how you got your start and what exactly you did back in... Uh, well, born and raised in Flint, mm-hmm. born back in 47, and had the good fortune to grow up during the era 
of the portable transistor radio. Mm. Now, back in the day, radios were pretty well a fixed thing in the house. You couldn't take them anywhere. You'd right. have one in the car. But then in the late 50s, early 60s, transistors came in, and they started building little radios with a whole four transistors and maybe eight transistors. And you could carry them around with a 9-volt battery. You could listen to everything that went on mm-hmm. uh, with the local radio stations. And I was just fascinated with all of this stuff coming through the air and being able to listen to it. So we'd go to the radio stations and hang out and watch the disc jockeys do their thing. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that, you know, I really want to do that. Yeah. So I had the chance when I was in actually elementary school, we had a thing called uh, Free Fridays or something where after school on Friday they'd play dodgeball and wow. they, the girls would dance and... The uh, gym teacher said, would you like to play the records? Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I play the records and watch the girls dance. So I started doing that, and then in high school, there was a fellow that was doing dances at the community schools, Mm -hmm. and he was more interested in the girls than he was in playing the music. Mm -hmm. So for $5, he would have me go with him, Mm -hmm. and I'd play the music while he could (laughs) do whatever he wanted to do. So I decided, well, why... Shouldn't I get paid the whole thing because right. I'm doing all the work? He's just providing He's the just equipment providing, or whatever. Yeah, right? you know, and we were renting the equipment. So we would rent the equipment for $25. Now, back then, $25 was a lot of money. Yeah. Actually, for $20. And it would cost us $15 for the sound system. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And it would cost us $5 to go to Hatfield's record shop and rent the top 40 which was unheard of because you weren't supposed to be renting records at the time. So you would get 40 records? So we'd get 40 records. It was not the hottest stuff going on. Yeah. And uh, we would go do the dance, and we'd get paid a whole $25 for the dance. So That's we, not... Uh, we you're would, losing a little bit. Uh, we would have a net profit of $5. Okay. Except we'd always break something. It would probably cost us $5 to get it fixed. How do you break something? Um... Just wear and tear, general, general wear and tear. <laughs> well, how old were you? Fourteen. Uh, okay, no, yeah. Sixteen. Uh, Trusting a sixteen-year-old with, you know. Yeah. I wouldn't give a sixteen-year-old my record collection. Well, we had, it was one speaker yeah. and one turntable. Okay. And it was a, a bogan, which they used in the schools for PA work. Mm-hmm. And you had an amplifier, and the turntable was mounted on top of the amplifier. So after every record, you would have to say something or talk Mm -hmm. to get the next record up and get it on. Just to provide that continual. Yeah, it really gave you a lot of uh, uh, experience in being able to talk Mm -hmm. in between records. In public speaking, talking in front of a live audience. Which, you know, talking between records is really all a disc jockey does. He talks in between the records and does the spots. So did that all through high school. Got to the point where I was doing all of the dances in Flint for all of the community school directors. So every weekend on Fridays and Saturdays, I was always doing something. Mm. So the big change in my life came when I was uh, getting ready to graduate. My father came down with cancer and died um, two months before I graduated. So I was thinking that I would have to find a job right away, you know, take care of my mother, whatever. So... A friend told me that I could go to broadcasting school. Wow. That is... But it would cost 
think it was $800. That had to have been a huge leap at the time, you know. Well, it was because broadcasting school was in Milwaukee, oh, and wow. I had never been away from home yeah. at all. So my mother came up with the money, signed me up for broadcasting $800 school. $800, too. That's, oh, yeah. That no, is no joke. No. Yeah. You know, my father in 64 made $10,000 working at AC, yeah. and he was an engineer, and that was good money. And yeah. We were living a nice, comfortable, middle-class life. And uh, I go over there, and they're really teaching me the same stuff I was doing when I was doing Record House. Mm. They would give me some copy, and I would have to read the copy. They would have us uh, sit in the studio and play records. Yeah. And then every weekend, I was driving back to do record hops here in town. Whoa. So, you know, it was back and forth, back and forth. Uh, the only thing I really got out of it is I gained 40 pounds. Oh, wow. Because you're sitting in a car a lot. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we were in Milwaukee, and Milwaukee, mm-hmm. I was the only one that had fake ID. Oh, boy. So we were drinking and partying pretty heavy. There you go. And uh, we would go to the, the breweries, and they would let you take a tour, and then you go to the Rat Skeller and yeah. drink all you wanted to drink. Wow. And after a while, they banned us from going there. I'm sure they kind of... Because we were there all the time. Yeah, they got wise. So I ended up leaving... In graduating at the top of the class, I had to do the speech at the end of graduation, telling them how I was going on to conquer the world of music and whatever. I love that. Ended up at WAKX, the House of Wax, Duluth, Superior, Wisconsin. Oh, my. That sounds out in the boonies. Uh, Duluth, Wisconsin, or Duluth, Minnesota, actually, is about as far north as you can go. Yeah. Is that where the... Superior is about as far as you can go into Wisconsin. Yeah. So it was a case of driving up to the Upper Peninsula, across the Upper Peninsula, uh, going off into Wisconsin, driving across Wisconsin, and I get there, and it's snowing, and I have no idea what the hell I'm doing Mm -hmm. at all. You are far from home. Oh, yeah, and the guy that ran the station was named Luke Lotto, was his real name. Mm -hmm. And he says, you're going to do the mornings from 6 until... So six until eight, mm-hmm. and then from eight to nine we're going to do the farm report, and then you'll do, <laughs> then you do nine to ten. Mm-hmm. He says and that means you're going to have to go into the morning and turn the station on. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking I don't know anything about this whatsoever. So we ended up the first day going in, did my thing, did a terrible job, nah. and it's snowing. Up there, this was the theme in the winter time. It snows, yeah. and it doesn't snow white snow. It snows gray snow, because you have all the coal docks for the freighters on the Great Lakes. Oh my all God. of the dust is up in the air, yeah. and then it comes down as gray snow. Wow! So I'm thinking this is really a depressing place. I've only been here a day. I don't want to be here. <laughs> yeah. The next day I go in, I sign on at six, and at seven o'clock the power goes out. No emergency lights. I'm in a studio I'm not familiar with, in a building I'm not familiar with. Oh, and every, there's no and windows, pitch, right? No, yeah. it is pitch black. <laughs> yeah. And all I can do is just sit there and wonder why the hell am I <laughs> in Duluth Superior, Wisconsin? It's like signs from God. It is. Like, what are you doing up here, so son? The, the power finally yeah. came back on, and we get through the day. I get back to the motel, and I said, okay, time to go home. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I packed up and went home. As brave of you, you know, leaving no, no, that job. I just, I just said, this is not for me. I'm yeah. going back to Flint, even if I got to work in the shop. Well, and you know, the music scene down in Flint, that's when it was 
starting oh, to get it going, right? Happening. Yeah. But the fellow that got me into broadcasting school worked at WAMM. He mm-hmm. was the news director. Don, his name was Don Pressman, and EMM was the black station in Flint. Mm-hmm. So I let him know that I was back in town and it didn't work out and whatever. I get a call from Jerry Jacobs, the general manager, and he says, "Do you know how to write copy?" I said, "No." He said, "Okay, we'll teach you." Mm-hmm. So. They made me a copywriter. I was writing commercials for the different advertisers. And I said, I don't know anything about it. He says, go back in the file, find a commercial for this type of business, and just copy it. Just change it a little bit, you know, and then you're a copywriter. So then there was an opening on the weekend, and they said, well, let's put you on the air on the weekend. So I did the weekends worked with uh, my program director at the time was Tony King and uh, worked with Tony. The The station was a black station, but we had two white disc jockeys and we had two black disc jockeys. And uh, the morning jock was Marcellus Wilson and then Sam Williams, who was a legend in Flint Radio, mm. did afternoon uh, sign-off. The station was only on from sunup to sundown and uh, I was doing middays, and then on the weekends I would do pretty much the whole day. Wow! And it, it fell into me working 365 days a year. Oh wow! I was working every day, doing a show, yeah. uh, no more copywriting, just being a disc You're on the air. And I was on the air. So they kind of they found your talent with that. Yeah, you know, th- th- I knew the basics, and they just helped me uh, hone everything. Yeah. The biggest thing it told me was when you're on the radio, you're not talking to a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. You're talking to one person. Yeah. So make it personal. Talk to that one person. That's really Everybody else will think yeah. they are the one person. Ex- yeah, because it's not a group uh, yeah, of people. Yeah, it's not a group of people. Right. So, you know, once you got that down, it was pretty easy because everything was just, you're talking to one person. Yeah. And then uh, a friend of mine, Larry White, he had the local black club, uh, the giant ballroom, and he decided that he needed somebody to come down there from the radio station and announce the shows. So he wanted to know if I would do it. And I said, yeah, you know, I'll do it. So I go down there, and the place would hold maybe 800 to 1,000 people. And the first time I walked out on stage (laughs) was the culture shock. Oh, boy. Because everybody (laughs) took for granted if you worked for the station, you were black. Right. Everybody took for granted if you talked on the station, you were black. Everybody took for granted until I walked on that stage. No way. Do you think that they were thinking you were... (laughs) Oh, they knew. No, (laughs) that's so funny. You know, because I walk up on the stage, and all of a sudden, there's a hush across the crowd. And everybody's kind of waiting for me to do... So I introduce myself, Mm -hmm. and they're all saying, No, man. What? He's black. I said, No, he's not. It's me. I'll be on tomorrow from 10 to 2, and... Yeah, you can listen to me tomorrow, but this is me. Yeah. So once we got past that, I would do all the shows. Yeah, and, and they had and to have heard the voice. Well, and been yeah, like, they, no they knew way. The, they knew the voice. You well, know, I've had that. They didn't know the person. They in knew the music, voice. you hear an artist and you think they're one thing. Oh, and sure. Then they're like, it's a woman or sure, something like that. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, my brother who worked for General Motors would be listening to me. He was plant protection when the guys were walking into the shop and. They'd say something about you. Oh, you're listening to that station. See, so, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm listening to my brother. Oh, yeah, that's Brother Pete. Yeah, we know him. No, that's actually my brother. Uh-huh. So your brother was in the game too? No, no, no. He oh. was. He was just listening on the radio, and these okay. guys would make comments, and they'd say, "No, he's black." 
said, no, he's my brother. That's and they go back and forth, back and forth. That's funny. But, you know, through that period, mm-hmm. it was probably the best thing to, to give you an overview of society and how to deal with people no matter where they are in the, the social ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, we would go to Detroit to some clubs that I should never, ever have gone to. Mm. But I was always welcomed because I had the balls to go. Yeah. You know, and they they looked at it as, hey, you know, if he's here, he's okay. You know, he's he's not trying to front on anybody. No, and your personality is such that you you were fine. So there were many, many stories of us going to Detroit and things that happened in Detroit and uh, things that happened up here at the Peace of the Rock. The giant ballroom morphed into the Peace of the Rock. Right. Peace of the Rock uh, is still around. Larry is still running it over on Dort Highway. But... It was the heyday of everybody who was anybody that was a black artist would come through Flint. Right. And, you know, we would do shows with Junior Walker and Johnny Taylor and Jackie Wilson and Clarence Carter and whoever happened to be in Detroit. We would catch them and have them work on Mondays or Tuesdays when they were traveling. Mm. Those were travel days. And we could get them for a good price. Yeah. And we still could get a good crowd. We'd have the Temptations come up from Detroit for 500 bucks on an off day just to mess around with... Just to the, give people a the, good their, show? Or? Uh, no, they're relatives up here. Oh. And then they'd get up and sing a couple songs, and uh-huh. and uh, um, David would run down an industrial street and score some drugs. And, <laughs> you know, it, just, it was just a whole, different, a whole different lifestyle, and it was a good lifestyle to at least have the experience. Yeah, and you got to interact with s- some people that were living, you know, and it, music was a different, it feels like it was a different dream, at least for them at that time. They were just doing what they loved and making a, a well, decent yeah, living. The, you know? the, they weren't killing it. Like The black artists were getting screwed by the record labels, yeah. so the only way they could make money is they had to go on the road and they had to make money in personal appearances. Yeah, And it, to them, it was a job, and to them, sometimes the job was weighing heavy on their shoulders. Um, they'd get into doing the drugs and everything else. Right. Um, and then I got in with the James Brown organization. Oh, boy. Um, through my friend Larry. He knew a fellow by the name of uh, James Sanford. They called him Casablanca. Casablanca was from Detroit. Casablanca was... Uh, he wasn't a road manager. He more was the guy that set up the dates in Michigan for James Brown. Mm. And I met him many times, and he just knew the spots here. And well, was yeah, you know, if James Brown wanted to come into Detroit, he would make sure that the venue was set up right, and he would do all the legwork before the show came in. So, how big was James Brown nationwide oh, at that time? Was he the at that time? James was a monster. Okay, James would have four or five songs on the top charts, and he just he was continually. Do you give him, on the road. Do you give him credit with uh, really kind of changing the game in rock and roll, like turning he, it into what we had well, in the 50s? He, he was the godfather of funk. Yeah. Okay, they okay. say George Clinton, but George had to learn from James. and You know, everybody learned from somebody else before them. Yeah. Um, going all the way back to a guy by the name of Louis Jordan back in the 40s. Uh, Louis Jordan was a black artist. Had a, Caledonia was his big hit. But he would go, before they went in the studio, they would go on the road with all the new songs. Mm. And he had a guy that sat in the audience, 
engage the audience's response to the song. Genius. So yeah. then when they went in the studio, they'd only record the stuff that the people reacted to. Hmm. And it was just, it was, uh, it was marketing before marketing was... Right, that's how you get a hit. Yeah, you know, you know and he had hit after hit after hit. Yeah. And actually came into Flint many times in the 50s and played the IMA Auditorium. Hmm. But uh, James Brown, I got fired from Wham. We got new owners, new owners we didn't like. We went on strike. I heard you say on, we the, on the, the Flint podcast that getting fired in radio was kind of like a oh, badge yeah, of that's honor. Just, that's just the <laughs> rite of passage in radio. Right, yeah. If you didn't get fired, you didn't do it right. Right, like where's you know? your passion at? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So we ended up going on strike, and that was something that a radio station had never done. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're out on the picket line in front mm-hmm. of the station. Wow. And you don't, you're not unionized, right? Oh, yeah. No, no. We oh, had a were? union, but it was like an engineer's union. It wasn't okay. an announcer's union. Yeah. It was NABET, okay. National Association of Broadcast Engineers and Technicians. Okay. And they didn't care about announcers whatsoever. No. Uh, so we ended up on strike. Don Pressman, the newsman, and myself, it was our job to go and get all the advertisers off the air. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, Flint was a very strong union town. Oh, yeah. And if anybody was going against the union, it wasn't in the best interest of a business to be advertising. Doesn't matter what union. Yep. yep. You yep. know, so we went and hit all everybody and said, hey, you know, we'd like to have you pull your spots, blah, blah, blah. A lot of them did. A lot of times the station would run them for free, and then the people would have to do a cease and desist, and we don't want to be on the station and whatever. Wow. So we got it all straightened out as soon as I got back. I was at home, and I get a knock on the door, and I go, and there's a telegram in the door. And the telegram says... A telegram. Yeah, thank you. I got (laughs) telegram Sam. Wow. (laughs) So the telegram says, uh, your services are no longer needed at Wonderful Wham Radio. Uh, This is a uh, notice of termination. Wow. So I said, well, man, you know, I'm supposed to be on the air tomorrow all day long, and my loyalty was to the station, not so much to the general matter or the owners. Right. So I went and did my show, but I wouldn't talk. Mm. So said, you just silence yes, in between? So, so I just segued records. I was going record to record. Wow. Record. So Tony King calls me. He says, what's going on? <laughs> he says, do you have a cold? You lost your voice? Uh. I said, no, I got fired last night. You got fired? Nobody told me about it. I said, well, so much for being the program director. Oh, what the heck? And, and, somebody, and somebody keeping you in the loop. You know? I love that <laughs> protest that you put up. Just like, I'll do it. I'm not going to talk. That's though. right. I'm just not going to. Nope. They don't want my voice. I'm not going to give them my voice. No. Nope. So we ended up parting ways with Wham. And Wham was, was really going down then because W3 Soul, uh, the FM station, black FM station, had just come online and. Uh, they, in the end, were going to just kick Wham's butt. And yeah. Wham started to try and play some white music, and it just didn't work. Right. So I was off for a while. There was a show in Pontiac with James Brown. We went down to see it. We're backstage. Guy comes out, and he says, Mr. Brown wants to talk to Mr. Flanders. How did he know who you were? Because because Ca- Casablanca knew me, and Casablanca oh, right. told, and he, told, right, told, right. Him, told him. He was the guy on. that was organizing the shows yeah. in Michigan. He told him what went on. He told him I got fired. Yeah. So I go back, and Mr. Brown says, you know, should I buy that radio station? I said, no, it's just a a day-timer, and it's not really going to be worth your time to do it. He said, well, I'll buy it, and you can run it. I said, no. (laughs) I don't want to run a radio station. I I like being a disc jockey. I don't want to be management. Wow. 
So he says, well, get a hold of Speedy Brown down in Cincinnati, and we'll see if we can't do something for you. Wow. So he was just reaching out as a friend. Yeah, he was just, just being, being cool. Good, yeah. <laughs> he was just being cool. So uh, I talked to Casablanca, and uh, he says, here, he says, uh, sign this paper. You were the MC for tonight's show. Well, no, I wasn't. Uh, Mr. Brown had his own MC, Danny. Danny had been with him forever. Yeah. So he says, just sign the paper. Mm -hmm. he says, so I signed the paper. He says, here, here's $200 for being MC. Wow. He says, and I know you still know the guys that are uh, still at the radio station. Here are some records that Mr. Brown would like to see if you could get played. Yeah. I says, okay, we're playing the game of payola. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I said, no problem. I'll take them and give them to the guys. If they're good, they'll play them. If they're not, they won't. Yeah. He says, that's all we ask. So about a week later, uh, there's a knock on the door again. And I go out, and there's like four big cases of albums. UPS had dropped off at the house, and they were all James Brown albums. Mm -hmm. And they were what we call cleans. They weren't punched. They weren't cut. They weren't sendbacks. They weren't promos. They were just clean records mm -hmm. and a note that says see what you can do with these it should help you for a while so it, to sell them yeah and it was okay. signed Speedy Brown who was the head of dis distribution wow. uh, down in Cincinnati what a community that you were involved so, in that's so amazing I took them down to the one stop and sold them for three bucks a piece yeah. now if I had them they'd probably be worth more like 40 and 50 bucks a piece uh -huh. but hindsight Man, at the time you gotta do what you gotta do yeah so then I get a call, and uh, it's from uh, a fellow by the name of Mr. Bobbitt. Mr. Bobbitt. Mr. Bobbitt was the road manager for James Brown. Mm -mm. Mr. Bobbitt was famous for being a little shady. Mm. Well, this already sounds like drug dealing, but with music. No, 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 no drugs at all. No, that's yeah, but the, yeah, like the comparisons. Well, yeah, it's like this know. sounds like an underground world, but it's all just music. Yeah, you it's, know? it's just the way things were done back yeah. in the day. So he says, would you like a job uh, on the road taking care of... At that time, they would sell albums during the intermissions of the mm -hmm. shows. Yeah. So you could go and buy your favorite James Brown album for five bucks or whatever. Mm -hmm. He said, would you like to handle that for us on the road? I said, yeah, yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's a new thing. It's a job, right? Yeah, it's a job. Yeah. So w we started doing that. And we'd have to go in the day before and set everything up and stay there until the end of the show. Never got to see the show because we were always busy. Right. And uh, it was good for about eight or nine months, and then it just got to be tiresome. Uh, the problem with the Mr. Brown is he, he, he works every night. Yeah. And so you're working every day. So how, did, how do you think he, where the energy came from? He was just driven by his own demons from being a child. Yeah that really didn't have a good childhood and knowing that it, all the guys that worked for him, that was all on his shoulders. Plus he had a lady who was his surrogate mother. Yeah. She was an older lady. She was actually his seamstress. She would take care of his, his outfits, right. and, but she ran things. And she took, and oh, she was like the mother figure she, to Yeah, him. she ran things. Right. So if you were on her good side, there was no problem. Mama's going to take care hey, of you. Thank you. And I was a yeah. yes ma'am, no ma'am guy. Yeah. So she and I got along just fine. But uh, she would have run-ins. She could get people fired. Oh, wow. She could fire people on her own. Mm. 
You know, and that was unheard of. So was she a good influence around him? Or? Oh, she was a great influence. Okay, that's what she, it sounds like. She kept him on the straight and narrow. At that yeah. time, you couldn't drink, you couldn't smoke. Um, if if your pants were weren't pressed, it was fifty bucks. What? If your shoes weren't shined, it was oh, fifty. Oh, so she bucks. ran a tight ship. Yeah, you know, they all ran a tight ship at that time, and everybody was better for it because yeah. he would get the guys, and they would be playing. And if something didn't sound right, they would spend an hour on one stanza of music wow. just getting it to where he wanted it. Wow, that sounds like some Frank Zappa type. Yeah, like, he, he was just a perfectionist when it came to his music. But And that's probably why it came out the way oh, it did. Oh, it did. It know? did. You know, later on when, when his, his career started going down and he got into drugs, it was just sad. And, yeah, he had a know, hard fall, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, they, a lot of them did. You know? Well, it was it's like trying to keep this impossible pace. It seems it is. like you know. Yeah. So what would they what it what does it look like in between shows, like on tour with James Brown? Everybody just laying around trying to catch their breath. Yeah, I bet the, they were pretty high energy. The, the last show events. in Flint was at Whiting Auditorium, and I went down, and uh, their drummer we called him Preacher. He'd been with him for years. Yeah. And uh, I'm backstage, and I'm talking to the kid that's doing the sound, and I told him I wrote for James Brown. He gives me this look. He, no, he just gives me this look like, yeah, sure you did. Uh-huh. And I said, yeah, I worked for Mr. Bobbitt. And all of a sudden, his eyes mm-hmm. got wide. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you worked for Bobbitt? I said, yeah, Bobbitt was stealing from the box office every chance he got. He said, you did work for Bobbitt. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so we're back there, and we're talking, and he says, I'm going to get you a backstage pass. I said, I already got one. I'm going to get you a James Brown backstage pass. Okay, so he goes back and gets me a backstage pass, and uh, preacher comes out and he says, "Pete, how you doing, man?" I said, "I'm doing well." He says, "Can you take the guys? We want to get some food." Mm. I said, "I can go get you some food. All I got's a car." Mm. He said, "Well, how many people can we get in your car? Because we want to get the hell out of here." Oh God! So we ended up at the Kentucky Fried Chicken on Dork and uh, uh, Davison Road, <laughs> and everybody's chowing <laughs> down on chicken. We get back there. The James Brown band. Yeah, and we get back there and what the they they they're going into uh, uh, sound check, yeah. and Mr. Brown comes out and they're doing their thing, and all of a sudden I hear no nope, no nope, that's not right, so I leave. When I come back that night, I see preacher. I says, "How long did it take to get past that?" No, no, that's not right. He said, "About an hour and a half." Oh my gosh. <laughs> You know, I play music with my friends, and occasionally we'll try to, you know, refine something that we do, but none of us have quite the attention span to even oh, work they, on the they, same they, thing over and over these like guys, that. These guys, he would put them through their paces. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and then yeah. they still had to do the show. Yeah. But the James Brown thing came to an end. They came back to town. I get a call from uh, Pete Cavanaugh from WTAC, and he says, do you want to do some summer relief at the station? I said, yeah, I'll do something. Like taking someone's spot for a minute? Yeah, when the guys go on vacation. Okay. So I said, I'll do that. So I go in. It's an all-new studio. I hadn't been on the air for a year or so. So it was, I was rusty. Uh, shaking just, the rust yeah, off. Starting yeah, starting all over. So the guy I was summoned for was Johnny Irons. Johnny was the character. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing the show and... John goes on vacation, and then I get a phone call and says, uh, do you want to work full-time? I said, well, who, who left? You know, what opening is there? Mm. He says, oh, Johnny went on vacation and got religion and saw God, and now he can't play rock and roll. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Boy. <laughs> so, 
So I started working at WTAC in 1970, yeah. and it was just the polar opposite of Wham, Wham being a black station and right. TAC being a rock station. But in talking to Kavanaugh later on, the reason I was hired was I knew black music. Right. And they wanted to expand their music list. There was great yeah. black artists. Yeah, that yeah into like, some stuff. Yeah. So he pretty much gave me free reign to play whatever I wanted to play. So what were you listening to um, personally at that time? Oh, I, I was listening to R&B. I was still listening. Oh, so you were a soul man. Yeah, yeah. All, all the soul stuff. I love that. So we ended up uh, with, uh, I told him, I said, your, your oldies library really sucks. Mm. He said, just bring in what you got. He said, I know you're doing dances every weekend. I know mm-hmm. you got all the records. Right. He said, just bring in what you think should be played. So I did. And then uh, we decided uh, the FM station came on, WWCK. And he decided that at nights and on the weekends, he wanted to go more album-oriented. Like full albums? Yes. Oh, he, he, I he, wish he, they would he do He wanted that. to do, he wanted to make the AM station an FM station at night. Mm. So we would do album cuts. We would do different cuts off of Zeppelin albums and Who and Uriah Heep and mm-hmm. whoever happened to be hot at the time. And uh, I was there doing overnights and weekends and drive time. A couple times when Kavanaugh got a hair up his butt and didn't want to be program director, I had to be program director. <laughs> And I didn't want to be. Mm-mm. I had to do the music, and I didn't want to. Like choose what's getting played. Yeah, we had a list, and you would have numbers on the list, and all the records would be numbered. Mm. And you were supposed to play these numbers in this rotation. Right. Well, my rotation was, as long as it was up tempo, I'd play it. Mm. If it was slow, I play oldie. Yeah. So my shows were different than the other shows. So, so instead of a slow rock song, you're yeah. going to play a, just an old. Unless it was okay. a slow rock song, song you know, and I kind of song I liked. You yeah, know. there's a, there are a few speckled here and there, but if you're going to compare a slow yeah. rock song to like some like funk or some slower R and B, sometimes that soul just hits a little it, better. It, it's just it's a situation where I was always up tempo. Yeah, I didn't like to have the down times. Yeah, so it was always a, a thing of pushing. And having some excitement in what's going on, and the slow stuff just would pull me down, you know. All right. So we did that for. Don't harsh years. on my veg. Yeah, thank I get you. it. Okay. We did that for until '78. Um, had the shows out to Sherwood Forest with all of the local rockers and some of the brand name rockers. So who were some of the good local rockers that uh, never quite made it, but? should have like that honorable mention there was know? a group called skyhook they were excellent um you know smack dab fruit of the loom uh justice miles um god springwell springwell actually had a couple of hits there were so many of them and out of detroit there were so many of them. well this i flint when you look at the the flint and detroit area for the music scene has been it's historic. Oh, it There's is. so many. It is. There's so much going on. There were so many groups that didn't make it. Yeah. But in Detroit, if you wanted to record a record, there were there was probably a thousand record companies. Oh, wow. There was just wow. a record company almost on every corner. Like in Nashville today. Yeah, and everybody's trying to get their record on the radio. Yeah. You know, and it just didn't happen. But some of the groups were really good live. We'd have them up, pay them a couple hundred bucks. And they'd come up and they'd do a nice set. Yeah. But we'd have Mitch Ryder all the time. We'd have Bob Seger all the time. 
Amboy Dukes, Ted Nugent. Amboy Dukes. Yeah. Nope. yeah. M- MC5. Even the Parliament and Funkadelic. We had them at Sherwood oh, Forest. Oh, you know I like them. <laughs> we had them at the Piece of the Rock, too. How, how big was Funkadelic? Because I really didn't discover them until a few years ago. They, they were big on the R&B side. Mm-hmm. And they would bleed over to the rock side simply because the hip guys were into what George was doing. Oh, yeah. And George was just really funky, and the group was really funky. And yeah. They were funky on all levels. They were funky. Hey, <laughs> They were mama. funky on all levels. <laughs> you can be my dog, and I'll be your tree, and you yeah, can pee on me. Yeah, the bottom line is every once in a while we'd have to have George take a shower. But other than oh, that, that was that, yeah. so I wrote down a few questions, and one of them was, because I've heard you talk about several stinky musicians who who <laughs> are among <laughs> who are among the stinkiest musicians uh, you've ever uh, I don't know witnessed George George and his boys were pretty funky oh yeah uh, Jethro Tell <laughs> was pretty funky uh, I can just his um, name it sounds dirty yeah it's just these guys would be on the road and I think being on the road probably got them out of the cycle of yeah. Hygiene that they would be in. You if turned they feral. I yeah, feel like. you know, yeah. if they weren't on the road because they were living out of their suitcases. Oh, you know. God. I bet they were ripe. We did not have the same. Uh, I'm sorry about that. These are not the uh, most comfortable uh, seating arrangement here. That's okay. You know, I got bar seating in here, and um, that's something that's going to be changing with my new place. I'm going to get nice sit down chairs with, an, with a comfortable back. No, and then you end up falling asleep. Yeah, yeah. I see. I see a lot of people with podcasts doing it. Like they'll have it set up on a nice couch, and they'll just two people talking on a couch. Oh, sure. You know, sure. you know, maximize comfort. Yeah, they tell you that it's good to stand, so I'll stand for a while. Well, good. Especially stand. after doing physical therapy this morning. Oh, I'm you don't want to tighten saying, up. Well, no, I've already noticed. You know, I played sports since I was a little kid, and now I'm 26, and. uh Starting 26. 26 whole years old. <laughs> I, I can't even fathom that number. <laughs> I, can't I know. Fathom it. I know. We're, we're talking about, I was probably 26 in the time in these we stories. That's why I'm, like, I'm putting myself there and just thinking, <laughs> what an adventure you were living. Uh, you know, it's it's incredible. And that's why I got, I was really, you know, I was a little apprehensive to ask. I didn't want to, you know, this is, to me, this is really cool getting to talk to you and every time I've talked to you at 501 it's been just oh, mind-blowing you know I love it um, but but you know I, TAC we ended up with a new general manager and yeah I got fired again and there you go so we were doing a lot of weddings doing a lot of parties I had 10 guys every week out doing weddings and doing parties and we had a booking agent in Ann Arbor and he says hey he says, have you got enough big equipment to do a thing for a college? I said, yeah, Ooh. probably. He says, well, I'm going to take you and put you in the showcase down at Appalachia State in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and oh. you're going to play for representatives from colleges because disco's big, and they're going to want to have disco parties. Oh, fun. So okay. So a friend of mine built equipment, Fred Miller. So he built us some custom equipment, and I went out and gathered up all of these strange lighting. At the time, you couldn't buy disco lighting. If you wanted flashing lights, mm-hmm. you had to buy flashing lights that were used by the police department. <laughs> and you had to get a 12-volt converter wow. to convert them so that you'd have them. We'd go down to Tobin's Lake Studio uh, in South Lines and we'd buy stage lighting, made our own flash pots, made our own 
you know, just very. And today, you know, it's you, lucky that we still all have our arms, our feet, our fingers. Yeah, I bet you were eyes. doing some some silly things with electronics in no, the seventies. We, we were making our own fog machines. Oh my! How do you make a fog machine? You get a big trash can, mm-hmm. metal trash can, fill it full of water. You get a livestock heater that they would use to keep the livestock troughs. Yeah, like a free, big propane thing or no, a diesel. No, no, it's just a little thing that plugs in. Oh, okay. You know, just yeah. you get that, you heat the water up on the lid, you cut a hole in the middle of the lid, uh-huh. you put in some uh, dryer vent pipe. Yeah, so it's like a little chimney coming little out. chimney, and then you get dry ice. Oh. And you get it nice and hot, you throw the dry ice, and quick as you do, you put that top on, you get the smallest guy you got to jump on top and hold that lid down because it would blow off, and all of a sudden, boosh, so how long does he have to? Fog. How long does it go for? And how long does he have to hold onto the lid? He's like got to hold time? on until it gets done. <laughs> That's so hilarious. yeah, so so we did. We went down and we did the cottage showcase. Yeah, and we were the last ones in the showcase, and the uh, the guy cut. We were supposed to be on twenty minutes, and it took us hell two hours to set up. Yeah. So we're all set up. We do our 20 minutes. For 20 minutes. Yeah, and the yeah. guy comes up and he says, can you uh, can you play a little longer? Said, yeah, whatever you want. He said, well, can you play another half hour? Yeah, sure. You know, we're set up. We're not mm-hmm. going anywhere. You got the album. So we do the half hour. He comes up and he says, can you play another hour? Let's go. So, okay, we did another hour. We ended up playing about two and a half, three hours. Hey. And all of a sudden, we start getting all of these bookings. Wow. And we ended up on the road. With my guys going anywhere from New York to Ohio to Pennsylvania to Indiana, it sounds like Kentucky, all these jobs you just you're just falling into these. They just kind of happen. Chicago. So you were touring the whole Midwest, doing yeah. colleges, doing colleges. Wow. You know, we'd go down and uh, we ended up with three shows, so we could do three on a weekend, and the guys would be all over. Yeah. And I never really realized until I drove to Nashville not too long ago how far Bowling Green is from Flint. Yeah. Or Bluffton is from Flint. Mm-hmm. And we would do all of these smaller colleges. And they would put us up for the night and take care of feeding us. And, and we had a good time. But, you know, just like anything on the road, it yeah. gets tiresome after a while. Yeah. So I come back to Flint, and a friend of mine had a record shop in Birch Run. And he says, well, nobody's buying records in Bertrand. I'm going to sell my record shop. I said, I got a ton of records. Maybe I should open a record shop. So there was an opening where uh, Rock and Roller used to be on Dort Highway next to the Aloha Lounge between Court and uh, Robert T. Mm -hmm. So I got a hold of the guy that had the building, and I said, I want to put a record shop in there. He said, well, there's one in there already. I said, yeah, but they're moving, and I want to go in. So we got the record shop. I bought the guy's record shop in Bertrand. We set it up. We opened on February 14th, 84, and we've been there ever since. And, you know, we started with records, then got out of records, got heavy into tapes, got out of tapes, got heavy into CDs. Now we're back into records again. And then in the meantime, one guy comes in and he says, hey, you used to be on the radio. We're thinking of doing an oldies program on the Great Lakes Satellite Network. I said, oh, satellite, huh? He says, yeah. He says, you know, we got an uplink. We uplink to the satellite. We broadcast to the stations across the state. 
I said, well, that would be very interesting. Yeah. So we decided to do it. And oh, it's Sock Hop cool. Sunday night. It was on a Sunday night from 7 to midnight. Yeah. And it was all request. Anything you wanted to hear, oh, wow. just call it yeah. in. If we got it, we'll play it for you. So we did that for 10 years, off and on. And at the height of it, we had 22 or 23 stations across the state. So you actually could come in at Hurley, Wisconsin, in the Upper Peninsula, catch us uh, in the Upper Peninsula, and then by changing stations, take us all the way down to Chicago. So we pretty much covered the whole state. Wow, that's and, a big area. Oh, yeah. And it was fun because people would call, and they're calling from places you've never, ever heard of. Yeah. You know, like Trufant, Michigan. That is the pine stump capital of the world. <laughs> what? So, so we would learn something every time that we were working. And it was very enjoyable, and uh, I had hired a young lady to do the phones mm-hmm. and ended up my wife for the last 32 years. Wow. So, so that's how you met Ginger. So that's how I met Ginger. She is a wonderful, wonderful woman. And we're still at the record shop. You yeah. know, we're still doing what we love. It's yeah. never going to make us millionaires, but it's just fun. It's as just long, a good time. It is. It looks... It, I, I've gone in there a couple times now, and it's... I, it's a great record shop. There's a lot of really good stuff. I asked uh, one of your partners in there about some Bobby Bland the other day, and he had like six, you had six different Bobby Bland albums. Oh, there's a bunch of Bobby. I've never seen any Bobby Bland anywhere. <laughs> I've never seen um, a lot of what I've seen in there. We, we did a lot of shows with Bobby. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we do Blue Mondays with him. Was he a player? Uh, no, Bobby was just a nice, nice was guy. He? He was he? I love. But he was not Mr. Excitement. No. Not at all. Uh, one night we're down to Phelps Lounge in Detroit, and uh, we're backstage. Backstage at Phelps was down in the basement. Mm-hmm. So we're in the basement of the place, and I'm talking to this kid. His name was Wayne Lakadusky, and he was the white guitar player. Yeah. He and I were the only two white guys yeah. there. And we're talking. He says, yeah, he says, you know, Bobby's not Mr. Excitement, but if Bobby really likes it, and Bobby's having a good time. He'll get up there and start snapping his fingers. So, <laughs> so if he's snapping his fingers, he's having a good that's, time. That's his dancing. So I, so I go up, and then when the show starts about halfway through, I see he's snapping his fingers. I say, man, Bobby's, Bobby's having, having a good night. <laughs> but he was just a nice guy. Oh, that's so Jackie good to know. Jackie Wilson was my favorite. Really? Yeah. What about Jackie Wilson? Jackie was Mr. Excitement. Yeah. Jackie, you know, when Michael Jackson wanted to learn how to dance, he went and got Jackie Wilson videos. Oh, really? Because Jackie could do it all. Jackie oh, wow. could do the dancing and the splits and and the Ooh. twirls and, and all the other stuff. And that had to have just made a crowd go wild. Oh, it did. It, yeah. the, the ladies loved Jackie. Oh, I bet. The ladies would be throwing their panties on stage. <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, you don't want no panties. <laughs> <laughs> you, you better be careful, man. You don't want them panties. <laughs> yeah, get away. <laughs> That's used material, boy. Wow. So, yeah, Jackie, and Jackie was easy to talk to. Really? Jackie had gotten screwed was over so much by the re- the record companies that uh, uh, he was just happy to have somebody come to the shows and, and see him work. Was that a common theme with the black artists at, t- at that time, that they were a little bit more down to earth oh, they than were. the they rock were. gods? you got to figure, Bobby Bland couldn't read or write. What? So when it came to contract time, if his manager wanted to put the screws to him, oh Bobby would sign, you know. Bobby Bland. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Bobby but, Blue but Bland. Yeah, but but Bobby was just, he was he just one of my nice, favorite nice voices guy. of all time. I'm, you know, and we saw them all uh, down there. Yeah. Phelps Lounge was my favorite because it was a blue-collar uh, black lounge in Detroit. Yeah. Eddie Phelps, the owner, was a very nice guy. Was it pretty laid back in there? It was. Yeah. It was. Um, that's where the 
more the Chitlin circuit black artists mm-hmm. would go. The Moton artists, the more polished artists, they would go to the 20 grand. And we'd go to the 20 grand and we'd see him at the 20 grand and got to know the owner there. And, yeah. But I liked Phelps because Phelps was just down and out. Yeah. It, it was just laid back. And everybody that, you know, was a good blues artist or a good black artist would show up at Phelps sooner yeah. or later. And uh, Eddie was just a little guy. He had a hairpiece that, instead of being black, was more blue mm. than it was anything else. Oh, and, God. and you knew it was a hairpiece. <laughs> and one night there's a fight, and the bouncers are taking care of the fight, and uh, Eddie wants to get in the middle of it. Yeah. And somebody snatches his hairpiece off his head. Oh, come on. That's and they just start, rude. And they start playing keep away with it. And all I hear, and I'm sitting at the table, and I'm laughing my ass off. And all you hear is, give me back my happy. Give, give, give me that hairpiece back. That's, that's just rude, uh, man. It was. That's it funny. was. And everybody started laughing in the fight. The two guys were fighting. They start laughing. Uh. And sooner or later, he gets his hairpiece back. That's what you get for being the short guy. Oh, it, that's was. it was. It was. That's funny. too funny. But that kind of takes everything up to what's going on today. Yeah. You know? Uh, a quick 40 years, 30 years. I mean, got to figure that I've been doing this stuff since 63. Yeah. So Which I've is almost got 60 just, years in. That's just the my favorite thing about classic rock music and music from that era is seeing seeing like what happened in the late 60s and how it just kind of erupted out of the oldies of the 40s and 50s. And to be alive in that time is just one of my favorite things to kind of like fantasize about, I guess. You know, 40s and 50s was pretty much big band, crooners, female singers, male singers. But then there were some breakout people that were doing a little more avant-garde, I guess you would say, at the time. And then, of course, you get Elvis coming on and the the start of rock and roll. And rock and roll really was just an... Uh, a different way of doing rhythm and blues. And right, and then you had, like, the takes on it that my favorite band, Led Zeppelin, had, oh, yeah. you know, where it but just, like, took it to just a different place. But you, you know? go back, and what they're doing is they're doing old blues tunes, but they're doing it with the rock. Yeah. You know, yeah. squeeze my lemon until the juice runs down my leg. <laughs> squeeze you know? my that, lemon? That, that, that's just an old blues tune, you yeah. know. That's like uh, Joe Turner singing uh, One-Eyed Cat peeping in the seafood store mm-hmm. and everybody just says oh yeah that's cool and the black guys are going oh, yeah, you know, one-eyed cat yeah, yeah. We, we know what he's talking about and the I mean, white audience just is like, just yeah white audience is saying yeah that's really a good song I like that no we should idea. play that so they have no idea whatsoever no and <laughs> music just it, it turned into this it was like a cultural movement it's, you know it well just, the, the 60s was the cultural movement the, yeah. the war Vietnam War without the Vietnam War there would have been a whole different twist on music you think oh sure because the war drove a lot of the bands um to be socially conscious yeah without the war they probably wouldn't have been that we'd no. have bubblegum music for the whole right. 60s they, you like know? bob dylan and uh, everybody yeah. everybody you know wear some flowers in your hair the the peace loving flower Neil kids. Young. you know just a lot of them would never have made it 
without having that angst of the war yeah. to drive their lyrics and to drive them. Well, isn't it funny? It's it's a uh, you don't get good art without some sort of struggle or some sort of adversity or well, something. Well, you, you like have that. to have something to address. Exactly. You know, in the fifties, we were addressing the good times. Yeah, there's nothing like we you just know, got we out of we World were, War Two. We were, II. Yeah, we we were having won. a good time. The Nazis are done. Yeah. Like, let's celebrate. Yeah. And the Vietnam War just kept dragging on and dragging right. on and dragging on. And then the, the government started the drug war and started taking down the hippies and the blacks, and that created more. You know, we look back on it, and I sit with the the, the black guys at the shop, and we talk about it. Yeah. We went through all this shit in the 60s, yeah. okay? And it's still here. So, so what did we really accomplish? Nothing. You know, little things, yeah. There were little things. But, well, oh, you but, guys specific yeah, with but, the music? But, it, yeah. but in the general shape of what's going on in the world today, yeah. it's still there. Prejudice will never go away. Yeah. You know, you can address it all you want. I think um, the best thing is it, that music and that the lyrics and the meaning carries on and continues to be relevant. Because there's not music that's, not much music that's being created today that's going to be played in 50, 60 years. No, that's you know? it. You know, I talk to these people about class reunions. And, oh, we want to hear the stuff from back in the day. Yeah. I said, you really want to hear Snoop Dogg? Yeah. <laughs> you really want to hear these things that you heard back in the day? Oh, yeah. we uh, Friends will make jokes about, like, what we're going to be listening to when we're, like, your yeah. age. And it's going to be, you know, like Eminem. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Which is, there's a place, but, Yeah, but it, but it's a small place, and... Yeah. The music of today is so much here today, gone today. Yeah. It's not here today with the legs to be here 40 years it's, down the line. And there's so many artists that I don't think there's enough there's to get to the level of some of the bands of well, that era. There's just you, so many artists that it's like You have saturated. too many superstars. Yeah. A lot of them superstars in their own mind. Yeah. But you have too many superstars to have anybody stand out. Mm. Back in the day, we yes. had standouts. You know, how do you these guys were good, but this guy was really good. Yeah, you know, Zeppelin was really good. The yeah. Stones were really good. Well, Deep Purple was good. Uriah Heep was good. Uriah Heep is my uh, favorite yeah, I was suggestion say, after, that you've ever after given I me. turned you on to Uriah. Yeah, Heep. never, never would have known. Magician's Birthday. Is that an album or a song? Song. And then Easy li- Listening was one of, or Easy Living was mm. one of my favorites. Oh, that's a good song. That that's a be classic. In the it album is on that album. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's just been, I don't, there, there are bands that uh, are touring today that I think have the meaning, the message, the music, and everything like we're talking about to make them standouts in that era. But because there's, it's just so hard to get people's attention. They're kind of underground now. Mm-hmm. Like there's a artist named Sturgill Simpson, and he's he won two Grammys, but nobody knows his name. See, that, that's the problem. Everything today is throwaway. Yeah, it's just nobody has an attention yeah. span. Nobody has the attention span to keep anything past yeah. right now. Yeah, you know exactly. That's why we talk about the old days. Once the old days and people my age are gone, the old days are gone. Mm. I try to tell the people at the record shop. Once I close this record shop. This music is gone. Your ability to come in and get this music is gone. Yeah. Well, we can get it on YouTube. Yeah, mm. but you've got to remember what it is. Yeah. That's why you come in and ask me who did what such and such. Yeah. And I tell you. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, now I remember. So it's just the record shop really is, is open 
for the musical memories. Wow. That's why we named it Musical Memories. Yeah. It's open for the musical memories to be able to come in and to be able to connect with something in your mind that was a better time, a better place. Yeah, and or stood uh, for something. Yeah, we, we get people come in and I'll find stuff for them they've never heard in years and they start crying. Yeah, you know, I can imagine. Because music takes you somewhere and relives an emotion that you had at the time. Yeah. Whether it was a good emotion or a bad emotion, that's entirely up to you. Mm-hmm. But it will bring you back to a place where... Oh, there's you know. there's songs that I hear, and I'll remember like the last time I listened to it, and I'll remember like exactly where mm-hmm. I was standing, what I was doing. Yeah. And then there'll come a time as you get older, you'll just remember the song, and you won't remember crap about where you were. I don't want or, that, or what you did, or anything else that went along yeah. with it. That's, well, that's what that's music is about, and I've like I've had the conversation before. I don't know if I said it. I don't know who's who I've heard say it, but like, but just music is the most important thing. Like, of everything that we have, music and art in general, I think, is just the most important thing. Well, it drives your life. Yeah. It does, you know? You can take music and you hear a big band song and you remember, well, that was my parents' stuff. That was yeah. big band stuff. That's what I heard when we were, yeah, dinner was, was getting ready. Yeah. I hear a song called Transfusion by Nervous Norvis. <laughs> Transfusion, transfusion, solid mess of contusions, never, never, never going to drink again. Mm-mm-mm. Slip the juice to me, Bruce. My, and then there's a big car crash. Yeah. And there's like three or four crashes in the record. And I remember my brother waking me up with that record in the ah. morning. And, and I would get so mad at him. Yeah. Turn, that, turn that off. And he'd just do it over and over and over again. Did you have any songs when you were younger that like scared you? No. I had a few. Flash by uh, Queen, like the intro to it, I don't know what it was about it, scared the shit out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the first record I bought with my own money was uh, Rockin' Robin by Bobby Day on Class Records. Oh, my goodness. And I shoveled snow to get enough money to go to Max Jones Swing Shop (laughs) on Lewis Street and buy that record, and it cost me a dollar... Probably a dollar and a quarter. Your age is showing right now. My my age shows every day. (laughs) Believe me. I get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and my age is staring back at me. That is the (laughs) oldest thing I have ever heard. And you're really not that old, but that was... Uh, I'm old enough. Did you walk up... was it uphill in the snow, barefoot both ways? Of course it was. Yep, yep. You had no, to shovel that, snow to get there. No, see, that was going to school. Oh, right, Because right. to go to Central, I lived on the east side, mm-hmm. and we had to walk through Kersley Park. Mm. And Kersley Park, of course, full of hills. Was, was full of snow. Oh. And there were times when I would get into Kersley Park and start walking, and it would be up to my thighs. Jesus. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to get home. <laughs> They're going <laughs> to find me frozen right here in the park, and I'll never, ever get home. Because going around the park was just longer. So you really do have a walk in the school in the store oh, snow story hell, yes. that was re- many times. Yeah, I couldn't wait to get a car. See, I will. I waited by the bus stop in the snow. A little bit different. There are no bus stops in the city. Yeah. Not back then. You mm-hmm. got there by hoof or by car. So what did most of the people like? Uh, what did your friends from like high school end up doing? Was it like all just going to GM to work? Was well, that the a lot of theme? them went to GM, but a lot of them became lawyers. Oh really? Yeah, because you had the social consciousness of the '60s. I got out of high school in '65. Everybody figured I'd be a lawyer and I could change the world. Yeah. Little did they know there'd be too damn many lawyers and yeah. there wouldn't be enough work. So. It's a hard job. It is. And a lot of them became professionals in other fields. 
It was funny because uh, my friend Gary Haggard, who's not with us anymore, mm. he and I went to school together. And every time I would see him, he would tell the people the story of, we had career day one day. And Flanders gets up there and Flanders says, I want to be a disc jockey when I grow up. And damned if he didn't. That's awesome. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think you really did the thing, you know. We had a good time. Yeah. His, his story is awesome. I, we could talk for hours, and I, the stories just ooze out of you, you know. Every time I start one, I can remember another one, but I'm at that age where every new thing that comes in, I have to remember i got to forget something from the past <laughs> because I am overflowing with yeah. memories of this yeah. and that. Well, there's so, so many. if you ask me what I did yesterday, I don't care. That, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, keep the, I, keep the yeah, good stuff. Yeah, because I don't want to lose that story of yeah. going through Kersley Park. No, know? no. you got to remember the stories of the stinkiest rock stars. Yeah, and, thank you. And who, uh, who... There's some other ones, but I... Oh, they slipped my mind. I would love to have you on again sometime in the we future. Yeah, That's fine. this was a lot of fun. Whenever I'll, you want to do it, anytime, absolutely anytime. You know, I am moving to Texas, so that's going to complicate. Okay, the matter that'll a just bit. cost you airfare both ways, and yep. you put me up in the motel. Oh well, that would be a very exciting day because it'd be expensive because hey. I don't want I don't want no motel six. You're not staying up in a motel don't, six. Don't leave the light on for me. No, sir. We will have you staying at the Four Seasons Penthouse Suite by that time you best get a better job <laughs> we're getting there <laughs> anyways mr pete flanders thank you so much for coming on the show that was absolutely thank you, Travis. incredible i appreciate you giving me the time thank you